Thanks, guys, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to our 11 o'clock thin service, apparently. This is, uh, I made a mistake years ago saying, I think we had a thin service or something for some reason, snowstorm, and I said, no one's here. And everyone's like, what does that make us, you know? I'm kind of like, you know, people are here, so and I won't say that. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm happy to be here and glad you guys are here. So on that note, we'll, you know, we'll keep going here. But um, welcome to our church. My name's Chris. If you're new, uh, welcome to Hiawatha. I'm one of the pastors, and as Peter said, we're in the middle of a, kind of still towards the beginning, but also kind of approaching the middle of a series in the book of Galatians, which is a New Testament book uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, that today will, um, the, the, kind of the major theme here is, uh, one of the ways to look at it anyway, is salvation apart from the law, uh, salvation through Christ alone, uh, and we'll uh, continue to, to beat at that and point at that and underline that throughout the series, as the book does, as the scriptures um, lead us. So if you are new to the Bible or new, maybe just haven't been a while since you've read Galatians, uh, to recap a little, and this will be um, uh, really summative, we're approaching that point now in the series where we'd, we'd spend the whole time summarizing if we wanted to, uh, could take that long. So, uh, but in sum, Galatians is written to a series of churches in the region of Galatia, uh, which if geographically, if you don't know where that is, it's like north of Galilee where Jesus grew up, uh, which is further north of the Judean uh, region, which is where Jesus went to to die and to be raised again, and where the church was born after the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus' friends and disciples, and it kind of just exploded uh, from there. This is Gentile country then, so think like modern-day Turkey, that area uh, east of Greece, and there are Jews scattered there, uh, and that's actually part of the context here I'll mention, but it's mostly these Gentile non-Jews coming to faith, believing in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. This is a shift kind of biblically, theologically, a movement from Old to New Testament. This was promised and anticipated and typified and waited for, uh, where the globe now, on this cosmic level, sinners would be coming, not just Jews now covenanted with God, but, but all people from all tribes, tongues, and nations hearing the gospel that Jesus came for them. He became like them as a human being uh, to die as a human being for sinners, uh, the Son of God doing that for us. And so people are being saved, they're being baptized into this faith, they're become, there's churches are kind of budding up all over the place. And the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter, he was sent out to, uh, to do this and, and commissioned by Christ ultimately and corroborated by the Jewish apostles, other Jewish apostles um, in, uh, in and around Judea in Jerusalem. Uh, but what's happening in the Galatian church is that there are some Jewish Christians, so these are, these are Christians now, uh, Jewish Christians, saying that, that kind of for them too, but Gentiles, which is a word used in the Bible to mean non-Jews, uh, primarily Greeks ethnically, but just anyone who's not Jewish, Gentiles are saved by Christ when he died for their sins and belief in him, trust in him alone, but now they stay in covenant with God, stay in relationship with God through law-keeping. So Jewish Christians saying, as you think, might think a Christian should, and, and this, this is a good start, then Jews and Gentiles now are saved by Jesus Christ, but they, they stay in relationship with God by keeping the Ten Commandments. They stay in relationship with God by being good. Stay in by keeping uh, what's called elsewhere in the book of Acts, the, the law of Moses. By pushing, so they're going to talk about circumcision, which was a marker of being a person of God in the Old Testament. That's shifted, kosher food laws, but also moral laws as well. No longer this mediatory thing between God and people. It was, it was never meant to ultimately be that. It was a placeholding thing. It was something that was meant to fail to make us yearn for a better mediator. That wasn't commands or laws, but rather Jesus who came to us to die as one of us in our place before a holy God. 
He substituted himself. And so that, that, in that sense, Jesus replaces the old way, fulfills it, it pointed to him, it, it yearned for him, but by fulfilling, he replaces. And so as that's happening, Jewish Christians are wrestling with this, and Gentiles too, and this is part of the context is Jewish Christians are wrongly uh, saying, now we're, we're kind of going back to the old system. Jesus is the new mediator, but now we need to, to stay in with God, stay in the covenant, stay in relationship with him, stay saved. Uh, we need to go back to this old, this old way. And so we, we use, we've been using the phrase adding, not subtracting to, to, to the gospel, which means the false teachers weren't saying that Christ didn't die for your sins or he didn't rise again or the gospel isn't true. That'd be much more easily flaggable as false teaching, much more easily flaggable and identifiable as not true. But rather, they're adding. They're saying everything you know about the gospel is true, but now we graduate onto uh, this place of being a law keeper to stay in. Whereas true Christianity says we, we enter God's family. We're, we're saved from our sins by Jesus and we stay in by Jesus. And we finish this race by Jesus. So the gospel is not the ABCs of the faith and that's it. It's the A to Zs. It's everything. The covenant, we're this New Testament or covenant now that we're in with God is by uh, Christ alone, by grace alone, through our faith or trust in that grace given to us on that cross 2,000 years ago. Laws are not required anymore. So uh, what I want to do that then now with all of that said, uh, just by means of recap, is read the, the passage. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you've got them for context, that'd be great, but this will be on screen too. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 to 14 is today's passage. And we are going to look at this. This is actually borrowed from the passage, this phrase, out of step with the gospel. Out of step with the gospel. So uh, let's read it in full. In verse 11, but... When Cephas, thanks, Eric. But when Cephas came, this is Peter. Uh, Peter came to Antioch. I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, it's a very interesting passage in a lot of ways because it's basically this confrontation between these two premier church leaders where Paul uh, has this almost audacity, you know, to rebuke this guy in public, you know. So whereas we might, and even, you could even look to certain passages in the Bible that would encourage this. You might say, maybe a little more healthy, Paul, to pull the guy aside, you know, in private, call him out on something. But this is such a big deal. There's so much at stake that he rebukes him in public in front of other people immediately when he sees this, uh, this type of thing happening. And so uh, what I want to do today is... Um, Actually, to, to explain the event, first of all, in case um, it wasn't clear, and I'll, I'll add some things for clarity. So Peter is in Antioch. Again, this is, this is north. Uh, Gentile country, eating non-kosher foods with Gentile Christians. These Jewish Christians arrive, and they're called uh, individuals from this circumcision party. So these Jewish Christians pushing the necessity of circumcision and other forms of law-keeping to be saved. Uh, at best case, these individuals are uh, ignorant, of how the Old Testament gives way to the new, worst case, they're posing. They're not truly Christians. They're just posing. 
and their false teachers. Probably a bit of both uh, going on here, uh, but either way, they're, they're in the wrong. Peter, number three here, Peter sees uh, these individuals come to Antioch, these Jewish Christians of this false teaching party. He actually fears them, which is interesting. We'll talk about that. And withdraws from Gentiles, from the Gentiles, having dinner with them, to hang out with, with them instead. And then this key phrase here we'll come back to, he, Peter, this is actually the actual content of Paul's rebuke. Peter is forcing the Gentiles to live like the Jews and thereby compromises the whole gospel. And that's the, that's the big thing we'll get to here eventually. But what I want to do today is, um, I mentioned first service, by memory, this passage was much easier to understand in my memory than spending time in it this week. It's much more layered than I think I, I realize. It's a lot of work this week kind of sorting through this. It's complicated. Um, but in order to, as, as an, in an effort to kind of uncomplicate it, I want to look at it uh, from three different angles or levels. Um, and this question is things that send the wrong message about the gospel. That's what Peter's doing, or Cephas. Things that send the wrong message about the gospel on three different, different levels. On the deed level or the action level, on the word level, and on the, the heart or the personal, the personal level. In that order, we'll look at them today. So the first level might be the most obvious. Uh, that's kind of physically what's happening. And so we'll look at that first. Uh, things that send the wrong message. De- is, on, on the deed or action level, Peter is literally separating from fellowship or dinner with Gentile Christians, and, and that action, that deed, sends the wrong message about, about the gospel. Um, now, I, I want to say right off the bat here that it, it's very common. Some of you may have heard this, or you're kind of currently here. If you haven't, you may. And so I want to I point at this a bit kind of throughout today, especially the first two points to combat this a bit. Uh, but it's very common to hear this particular passage in the Bible talked about as if this issue is the only thing going on. That it's not layered, but in fact the only thing going on here is a physical separation of different types of people. So again, I'm actually going to argue against that in a minute. There's much more going on here than simply unnecessary Jew and Gentile separation. Though it is happening. And so with that said though, there is some irony in in the passage here. As we understand kind of what's going on in the Old Testament, preparing the way for this, some irony that needs to be highlighted. And it starts with food laws. And so uh, I kind of mentioned this before when I explained, it's not as clear in Galatians 2, but as I explained the event, part of what's going on is, is Peter eating with these Gentiles, he's probably eating non-kosher foods. He's eating things that Jews weren't supposed to eat, at least under the Old Testament system. They could now, things are different, and I'll explain that, but he's, he's uh, eating uh, non-kosher foods. Now, understand, if you don't remember this, food laws in the Old Testament when God gave these types of laws to Israel and said, eat this, but don't eat this, for Israel, for a time, helped to demonstrate the separation that God was calling Israel to have among the nations. So, uh, for example, in in the book of Leviticus, God says to Israel, separate foods as I separate you among the nations. Separate foods as I separate you. So, it was a physical picture. They were kind of eating this idea all the time when they were eating kosher foods and abstaining from other foods, they were kind of eating the fact that God was calling them away from a cursed earth, away from other evil people, by grace, not because they were inherently righteous, but by grace. So there was a grace in it, actually, but also kind of a curse in that it underlined over and over again how separated people were 
from God. Not just the food laws, but if you know much about the temple in the Old Testament, there were barriers and veils and walls, and God was kind of drawing near, but things, all these laws kind of uh, predicated this idea that people couldn't really access God and get to God, nor God to people because of sin. And so there were priesthoods and washings and laws, and these food laws kind of underlined that idea that uh, the gray side, again, God is calling sinners to be with him. The curse side is that people are still separated. And that, that idea of people being separated pointed to how all, uh, from each other, pointed to how all people were separated from God. Just God loves doing that. And remember that for a lot of you. And if you're new to the Bible, um, understand God loves to do this. He loves to say things and show things. Let's just speak the explicit and demonstrate it physically. Jesus does this all the time. He says he's the bread of life and he feeds people with bread, you know, or something like that. It's, he's a master at it. God, who, and Jesus is the son of God, so God himself, the father in the Old Testament, we'd expect to operate the same way. He's saying, you are se- I am separating you, but he's saying separate these foods is a picture of that. And so when it comes then to Jesus in the New Testament, the one who fulfills but replaces all of that, this whole old system, it makes sense he would declare all foods clean, which he does in Mark 7. He says things are changing. I'm changing the law. I'm establishing a new testament, a new covenant, of which I am the ultimate priest. I'm the lawgiver. When you change the whole covenant, you change the laws or stipulations that go along with it. And part of that is uh, I'm declaring all foods clean now. And so it makes sense he would do that because, now, now think about this as like a, a river flowing from the headwaters. So the river is interpersonal separation and the headwaters is separation with God. It makes sense he would address the river because the headwaters are being changed too. In other words, because the dividing wall between us and God was breaking down. Jesus was doing that. And so relatedly between people as the new covenant is for all people, not just Israel. So again, this old placeholding, foreshadowing, separation-filled covenant for Israel was giving way to the better testament or covenant for the world that would be wrapped up in Jesus' work for us, for all people, and fully breaking down barriers, not just kind of identifying them. So Peter then, back to Galatians, Peter at this point, uh, historically, and kind of covenantally and theologically, understands all of this. God gives him a vision about it in Acts chapter 10, if, you, if you've read that, I'm not going to read that today, but I encourage you to go do that. God gives him a vision about all foods being clean, um, he's in Antioch now in Galatians 2, eating actually non-kosher foods, mounds and mounds of bacon, just shoveling it in with these, these um, you know, uncircumcised Greek Christians. He's dining with them, uh, yucking it up, having a great time. And, he, and he's now with them, these other, these other Gentiles now who also believed in Christ and believed that they were unified with God now through Jesus that they were clean now in him. Like God declared all foods clean, he was now declaring all kinds of people clean from their sins because of what Jesus, is, Jesus did. So they were eating kind of around that, and to reflect it, they were eating uh, non-kosher food. But he, so all that to set up this, here's the irony. He withdraw, Peter withdraws and separates from these Gentile brothers uh, when these Jews get there, which separation, which is what the old food laws that are now abolished intended to do. So it's, it's ironic and condemning for Peter. A guy who preaches freedom in Christ 
is now imaging the old system of separation and law, which constantly demonstrated and showed and spoke that because of our sin, we could not get to God, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how good we were. It, it, it always failed, the whole system. And so now he's imaging the, the, the wrong thing. It's hypocritical. Actually, you, Paul uses that word. You're, you're acting hypocritically. But we'll come back to that, but he, here's the issue when we talk about sending the wrong message about the true gospel. Interpersonal reconciliation or just healthy Christian friendship with people who are different from us images the fact that we are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ and made friends with him, sons and daughters. So clickiness uh, in the church, too much clickiness, Christian factionalism, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 or 4 talks about that, different church setting, but Christian factionalism mixed with pride images the wrong thing about the gospel. And that wrong thing is that God, who is different from us, has maintained separation. Even though Christ is here, he's not close yet. So that implies there's more for us to do to bridge, to bridge that gap. Jesus isn't, isn't enough. So what that can do, and not all the times, I'm always going to do this, but what it can do is subtly communicate a false gospel. Become like me, or you can't be saved. Or become more like God, which is another way of saying, do more good works to be, to be saved. That or then God will save you. Or is, is the kind of more the context here in Galatians, God will keep saving you, uh, if you if you do more to make him happy. So on the surface... That's first what's going on here, is his actions of separation send the wrong message about continued, even now in the New Testament, separation from God. And that happens for us as well. You may not have realized that, but that happens with you. That happens with me. Too much clickiness or factionalism or withdrawal from people who are different, especially if they're younger in the faith, um, can send, send the wrong message. And we'll talk more about how that looks theologically here in this, this next, next section. And that is that it's not just the deed, but it's more what this points to, the word side. And that, that is to say theology that neglects Christ alone or grace alone sends the wrong message about, about the gospel. All right, so to, to argue for this then, in verse 11, we, we see a, um, a, a but. So this conjunction, but. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So uh, what does the conjunction mean? It points us back. Right, it's contrasting with uh, the previous section, which was, if you weren't here, or to remind you, I wrote this out to be clear. The previous section's point was basically, I, Paul, the author of this book, went to Jerusalem to corroborate with the other apostles, including Peter, and though I had an uncircumcised Titus, a Greek, with me, no one forced him to be circumcised. And together, all of us, including Peter, we did not yield to the circumcision party's demands that Gentiles be circumcised, and that all of us must continue to keep other Old Testament laws to keep our salvation. Or, in other words, to stay in relationship with God. And so now the, the conjunction but here is, is but, uh, this didn't happen. So Peter's actions here are going to fall out of step with all of that on the bottom. So if you kind of flip this around here, on top, if we put the previous section's point on the bottom, 
basically what, what this means with the but here in verse 11 is when, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to his face because he did the opposite of chapter 2, 1 to 10, last week's passage, summarized above. Or in other words, he taught that it was by the law that we stay saved because that's the opposite of what they previously were, were warring against, the opposite of what the point was in the previous section. So grammatically, we're helped with the first word to see what really is going on or under, underneath the layers of just physical um, separation. Peter is going to fall out of step with all of that. He's going to pose all of that on top, which again was to teach that you have to keep the law of Moses, the Old Testament, Ten Commandments and food laws and circumcision, all of that stuff, in order to be saved. That's a quote from Acts 15, by the way, elsewhere in the New Testament. We know this is the issue going on. So the question now is, how does he do this? How, do, how are Peter's action? how does he, his conduct, how's it out of step with that idea? We've already said it's with his actions, as we talked about, but it's more than that too. It's more than separation signifying something. It's about separation accompanying bad theology. So just try to put yourself in the room for a second and think like those Galatians would have felt when they saw this separation happening. Gentile Christians are getting there and, and these Jewish Christians come who have this bad theology, they're kind of arrogant and, and they're, they're law pushing. Right when they come, Peter gets up from having a good dinner with them over a pork sandwich that they were enjoying and you know, right when these, these guys arrive, there's no, what would you have thought? I mean, there's, there's no way they wouldn't have thought, maybe we're not as free as we first thought in the gospel. Maybe other things are in fact required besides trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to be saved. See, their concern would not have been missing having dinner with a Jewish Christian, but rather that they were missing something for salvation, that Jesus wasn't enough. Furthermore, uh, Paul's instantaneous, fiery public rebuke of Peter would, would not have been justified if Peter was just hanging out with Jewish believers or if it was a matter of just immaturity or just getting along with other people who are different from us. It was rather his hypocrisy. Saying he's free from the law, and all Christians are, but then acting like he wasn't and leading others astray, in other words, away from Jesus because of that bad theology. And, and here's the phrase that we see. It's really important. Bottom of that paragraph is how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? This is the content of his rebuke. How can you force the Gentiles, his actions are doing this, maybe his words too, we don't know, actions at least, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? If it was just about separating from these, these Gentile believers, that rebuke makes no sense. What's it mean to live like a Jew? To keep the law, to keep the Ten Commandments, to eat certain foods, to be circumcised. So these actions struck at the very heart of the gospel. It's, it's about way more than having, having dinner with people who are different from us and some vague notion of value and diversity. We'll come back to that. It's about requiring Christians to keep the law to be saved. In other words, he would say, to live like Jews. So again, maybe these guys are thinking, Maybe Peter will eat with us after we keep the law, after we're circumcised, after we do more. See, everything's at stake, you guys. This is why it's much more than about a dinner party. 
This is, this is a people's internal destinies. This is how they read the Bible. This is the nature of the gospel itself. This, their joy, their happiness in Christ is at stake. This is why he's so fiery uh, here. The actions of Peter struck at the heart of the gospel. Separation physically that led to implied Jesus plus something else theology. Jesus plus something is what we need rather than just Jesus alone. Also, to continue to argue for this, remember, um, if you were here, I'll explain this to you um, if you weren't. But back in last week's passage here, kind of highlighted in yellow, um, in, in 2.4, the false teachers, according to Paul here, were bringing Christians back into slavery. Sl- slavery is the, the key term. Which, with the help of Acts 15, I'm not going to have time to quote all of this, but uh, in context, it, it taught us, reminded us that slavery was being under the law. With the help of Acts 15, we know what they, what, what they meant was that these circumcision party people, these Jewish Christians, were requiring Old Testament laws to be saved. So in other words, Jews dining with Jews wasn't slavery. That was still allowed. But being under the Old Testament law was slavery. And freedom in the gospel wasn't simply categorized as now we eat with people who are different from us though that happens, and that's great. But that's not freedom. Freedom is freedom from the law. Freedom from the to-do lists. Freedom from the conditions. And now covered by the blood of Jesus alone. And the freedom in that. So last week, if you weren't here, we looked more at Acts 15 as a narrative context to this. And and when the Jewish Christians are wrestling over this idea, uh, part of what Peter actually, it's interesting, Peter, the guy in question here, is the guy that stands up and says, to these Jewish Christians who are requiring law. He says, why would you place a yoke of burden around these brothers that we nor our fathers were never able to keep? Why would you yoke them, which is a slavery idea, kind of like a yoking an ox to kind of till, to till soil or earth? Why would you put a heavy burden around? It's a burden to hear, you guys are saved by Jesus, but only if you do good the rest of your life, you know? That's slavery. Right? It's not, that's not good news. At least it deadens the good news, if not completely takes it all away. But that's what these people were doing. That's slavery. And slavery language is used to talk about yoking the law around people's necks in place of just the gospel alone being, uh, being now what's between us and God, what saves us. That's the freeing thing. So this is important. Bring this back to Galatians for a second. This is what I mean. So Paul's rebuke here isn't, Peter, get back at that table with those Gentiles as if the act of being with them alone was the gospel, but instead, stop forcing them to live like Jews or, in other words, to be circumcised or, in other words, to keep the whole law to keep your salvation. That's what his rebuke is. And this is actually a... uh, Really important issue. Um, I said for first service as well, this is partly kind of testimonial or experiential for me. Um, I want to talk about this contextually a bit today. And so you guys know, we're trying to do this throughout the series. We're trying to kind of put our finger on uh, contextual things. So, so in other words, things that are happening today, because most of you in the room probably aren't thinking, yeah, I, I struggle with eating bacon. So that, that's, that's not really the thing anymore. Like, it could be you know, for certain people in different ways. It could be a food thing. 
could be fasting, people requiring fasting, or you're not a good Christian. Uh, that's, that's a big deal, actually, in the, in the New Testament to combat that. But, um, but it might be something else. And so we're taking kind of time to point at a, f- at a few things. And um, it's a timely thing. Uh, I, I wanna, I'm going to say something here and, and argue for it and twist it. So just hang with me um, after the first remark here. But with all of this in mind that we, we've just talked about, one thing we learn is the gospel isn't diversity. The gospel isn't diversity. Diversity is a good thing, an implication of the gospel in the local church and beyond and in our lives. But the gospel itself is Jesus died to reconcile us with God and to end the enmity that we had with him. He was diverse from us and he came to our rescue and he came to to dine with us and bring us close and call us friends and identify us as sons and daughters, adopt us into his family, all of that. That's the gospel. So for Peter to be out of step with the gospel is to be out of step with that. Not simply out of step with eating with people who are different from you. So for us then, one thing we need to do with this, and some of you might be more privy to this than, than others, and that's fine. Uh, this is a, has been, I think is, and, and will be a big issue for a while, in the church even, but also culturally. Um, it is, we, we have to resist the temptation here to reduce this passage, as many do, if you weren't aware of that, just know that, many do this. Reduce this passage to an overly simplified call to go and have dinner with people who are different from us. There is an element to that that can image the gospel really well, really well. And so Christians are right to care about it. But that alone, making that the gospel itself, this vague notion of of diversity in a church context or kind of in our lives or beyond, that alone can actually, uh, or just the principle of diversity, can actually end up leading people away from the gospel as well because we mess with it. We take a good thing and make it a gospel thing, and the whole thing gets thrown out. We can make it more about getting along with others rather than getting along with God and being saved. It's very easy to do, very easy to do. You know, one thing we we want here as in our church, many churches do, um, we want uh, diversity. We actually are diverse, so it's actually not really a a goal, it's a reality uh, for us in many different ways. Um, Most people when they talk about diversity talk ethnically, uh, and that's great but we talk even bigger than that. The Bible does, uh, much bigger than that. Um, so we, we want uh, and have diversity. We want the world to, to see that. Uh, in a lot of ways, we think as a church, we have it more than, than the world does. It's easy to talk about it and you know, post an article on social media about it and you know, give, to, give to it, whatever that means. Uh, but we think that the gospel frees us up to love others who are different from us because God who's different from us loved us. And if that's the core message, we really, really believe that, it's going to get us over ourselves a bit. We're not going to have as many agendas. We're not going to want to make people like us. We're going to celebrate who they are. We're going to want that diversity on many levels. Um, I I mentioned first service, too, as kind of an aside here, but uh, we had a men's retreat yesterday here, and um, and it was awesome. And we need that time as guys uh, to, to get alone. We'll keep doing that. But also sitting here singing with these guys and, and uh, playing games and having a great time, but thinking, but we're not fully represented here. We miss our women. You know, we missed all you, all you gals. Like, it wasn't, 
It, we weren't complete with, with, without you there. Because gender diversity is to say, um, it is diversity, first of all, but it's to say to image God perfectly. Remember what happens in Genesis? When God wants to create people in his image, he makes two genders. So it's very important for us not to androgenize. We want to celebrate men, celebrate women as distinct and different and diverse and celebrate that here because when you do that well, you image the God of the universe. And so that's a big piece to it uh, as well. But we could talk about a lot of kinds. But okay, so but here's the thing. To the world, we want to demonstrate that. But we're also not just some social experiment on diversity either. It's not what we are. We're a church. We're more passionate or should be more passionate about sinners being saved by Jesus' grace alone. If that's not our ultimate passion, it's really hard to read this book and for it to make sense and to understand Paul's angst here. We have to do better between oversimplifying and just saying between the two kind of extremes of diversity is wrong, and I really know no one's saying that anymore anyway, but you know, no one, diversity is wrong and diversity is the gospel. Those are both unhelpful and wrong, either wicked or misguided theology. There's a third way that says diversity is good and implication for the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself and not the biggest drum we beat as a church. If, if we miss that message, you guys, we throw the whole gospel out. It may not seem like that, but that's part, partly what Paul's anxious about, anxious about here, why it's a public rebuke. If we make Jesus' cross that that had to happen just to help us to get along with people who are different, the whole thing goes kaput, everything. It comes crashing down. You know, for the, for the sake of some vague notion of interpersonal whatever, uh, we, we lose the fact that God has paid the highest price. He bled on a cross for six hours in the heat of the day among criminals, slowly asphyxiating for us because he loved us. All that goes out the window if we flip those things around. And uh, all the while, not doing, a, not doing a great service to the idea of diversity either because to make it the main thing is to make it too much of a burden that it was never meant to bear. The, the idea of human diversity was never meant to be the ultimate thing. It can never bear the, the, the load of being the main thing, the most satisfying thing in a person's life. And so to keep it secondary or down here, actually there's a greater service to that idea too, which is a whole other thing. So, but I'm going to move on. Uh, with that said, so that's the second thing. The, the third thing here is this idea of uh, fearing man. I'll go a little bit quicker through this. So, in other words, um, to go back to our topic, the the uh, third way that um, the, third, the third thing that can send the wrong message about the gospel is uh, fearing people or not getting their approval. So this uh, is a huge step backwards for Peter. If you guys know a bit about his story biblically, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Peter was Jesus' number one apostle. He's the guy that, Peter, that Jesus said to, on you, I will build my church. He preached the first Christian sermon ever, and 3,000 people were saved. It was his leadership in Jerusalem that helped kind of, through the Holy Spirit's help, that kind of created that spark that sent the whole thing ablaze uh, in, in a good way. This is a huge step backwards for him, though. In Acts 5, 29, I, I don't have this on screen, but just listen. In Acts 5, which is before all this stuff's happening in Galatians, it says, in the face of adversity, 
But Peter and the apostles answered, these critics, we must obey God rather than men. That's Peter's words. We must obey God rather than men. Now here, look at him. You know, we'll pick on him for a minute. This is kind of all of us in a sense, but it's a mirror. But look at him. What a reversal, right? Now he feared what other people thought more than he feared God. And more than he valued a pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the thing is here, if we worry about what others think more than what is true, that is yet another thing that can subtly send the wrong message about the gospel. Not just that we don't revere God as much as we should or the gospel leads us to, but that, we, that also we're saved by works, the, the flip of the gospel. We're saved by works, not by grace. Because fearing people is always more readily related to works than is fearing or revering or submitting to God by, by grace. Now think about it this way. We fear people, we work for their approval or simply recognize some kind of moral level that they're at, but we aren't. But the gospel says you've already been given approval by God through Christ's work for you. So, so why fear man? Why fear people? Because it can never be taken away from us. The more we understand it, the less we'll fear. The more confident we are in that love, the more of a reality, not a concept, but a reality that we live in, the less we'll fear other people's thoughts and their concerns, their disagreements. We might still feel the sting of it, for sure. That's, it's never a fun thing to conflict with someone, but we won't have a, have a crippling fear over needing their, their approval. In 1 John, the, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. God's perfect love shown for us through Jesus when he died for our sins makes us fear less. It casts it out, kind of like it's a demon. It casts us out of the house it out of the house, out of our lives, uh, never to return. Even though we'll feel the sting of it, uh, it's oppression over our lives leaves. So Peter here is an example of a guy who was not secure in the gospel. He, he had more of a works-based mindset, and it made him less confident and free in Jesus. And so he withdrew. So he separated. So he feared and so he stood condemned. Paul's rebuke then is a rebuke of his heart and his beliefs, not just his actions. He's saying to him, basically, to Paul to Peter, you are not confident, brother, in Jesus' grace. So you are looking elsewhere to fill the gap, which is to fear people, which is to say to teach, to teach the law. And you're leading others to do the same, which is a seething criticism for an apostle, for a pastor today, to say you are leading people away from Christ. That, that, is, the, that is the worst of criticisms for uh, any Christian, but especially for someone in like Peter's shoes or a pastor like myself or Spence uh, to have that. So in conclusion here, guys, I, I just want to ask a bunch of questions with not a lot of easy answers uh, or clear ones, and there's a reason for that. There's so many implications this has. Uh, for our life, but I want to ask some big picture ones. Um, first is, is your conduct on the deed, word, and heart level in step with the gospel? And here's the warning. Peter backslid. I, I, this should be a, if this happened to Peter, how much more can it happen to us? Peter's number one guy, like we talked about. 
It happened to Peter, the guy who wrote two books of the New Testament. That's, that's, a, big, that's, a, that's a big deal. It's a heart, in other words, it's a heart, if it's a heart issue, and not just a theology or idea or factual issue, and, and just do the theological math with me just for one second here, and if the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17 says, above all things, that's like the biggest liar, we, and it lives inside of our bodies, like good luck. If that's all true, then this is not just that, yeah, I've heard that once and I've ascribed to it. It's the fact that our hearts can lead us away from grace like it did for Peter. It means that we need the Bible. We need the church. We need the, we need the grace of God uh, to remind us of our, of our shortcomings and how we're doing this all the time because our hearts aren't in tune with grace naturally. We don't speak the language of grace. It's not our first language, the language of grace. It's foreign. We're learning a foreign language. Our heart, rather, is in tune more with ourselves and what we can do to earn salvation. And so, um, so the question's here, what do we say about the gospel? That's the word level. How is that gospel imaged in our actions? And a lot of that can come through um, how we love others who are different from us. And how does it penetrate our hearts, alleviating us from fear, fear of people? Because we're so confident that God declared I'm calling you righteous and perfect and my son and my daughter and in Christ because of what he's done for you. You're sealed, purchased, bought, saved, brought in at the table already with God, the God of the universe, dining, happy in him. I mean, that, that's, the, the more we have that, uh, has that penetrated the heart? Has that really sunken in? Um, that will alleviate the, the fear and, and other un, undesirable traits as well. Uh, more questions we could ask is, what do you oppose as Christians primarily? And I italicize primarily, that's, that's, and I, I mean that, because there's a lot of good things we should oppose as men and women of, Christ, of God, of the cross. Um, but what do you oppose primarily? Other believers not sharing your angst over some social issue, or people messing with the gospel itself? Do you look down on other Christians for not living up to your own preset standard of righteousness? Maybe how much you fast, what cause, causes you support and get all loud about on Facebook? How diverse maybe your church is compared to others? And to stop there for a second, that, I mean, when we talk about diversity, uh, actually any of, these, any of these issues or any kind of social cause, um, one of the ways legalism, or this idea that we have to do something else in kind of a law-based level to earn, earn salvation, comes out, is not just saying to someone, you need to do something to be saved, but in our hearts, uh, looking down on them for not having a spirituality like us. Right? How is that any different? If, if we believe good Christians should do this, legalism's not just saying you have to do it to be saved, out, like, loudly, but in our hearts having kind of this subtle, yeah... They haven't given to that. They haven't posted about that. They haven't shared that. They haven't funded that. They haven't blogged about that. You know, we look down on them for not. How is that any different than flat out saying to that person, you need to do it? It's not any different. It's the same. It looks different. But that's one of the ways legalism re roar, rears, roars its ugly head in our hearts. 
is that we look down on people for not measuring up. Oh, you didn't observe Lent this year? Huh. You know? Interesting. Uh, I mean, that's, right? I mean, that's, well, what? You got a verse for that? So that's, that's kind of the, but that's how it can seep in. And oh, so where's our angst? Is it in those kinds of things? Or does it bother you most when people take the focus off of Jesus' death and resurrection and put it more on themselves or a cause or just uh, plain old works? And I'm, I'm kind of like talking cause stuff now because it's just a timely thing for us in our culture. A lot of great things we can be involved with. A lot of great things. But to make them gospel things is wrong. And it needs to be called wrong. Because it defames Jesus, it takes your joy away, and it leads people away from salvation. When you make a good thing central, um, it's happening all over the place. And so I talk about causes because we're cause happy uh, as, as a church these days. So, but back to the unity thing. You know, we believe here the gospel should, should be the most unifying thing in the universe, including unifying people with different sub-agendas under the umbrella of grace. And, and that's a beautiful thing for a church. If, if the gospel rightly defined is the center and the main thing, then we can love each other across minor doctrinal differences and the different ways we might work that out in the world on social levels. But... If we flip these things, and if, if we put activism or works or another social cause at the center, then we can't have unity with other believers who think differently. We simply can't coexist. We won't. You know, and, and historically, we, we've loved seeing this here where people were very different on many levels and, and on a lot of minor doctrinal levels. Some of you um, are in, in different places than the, than the leadership of this church is, but because you and, and the leadership here have majored on the majors and have said this is, what we're, this is what the gospel is and what it isn't, we can coexist and love and have unity amidst that, that diversity. Or think about it this way. You know, what, what if Peter said to the circumcision party back, back in Galatians 2 when, when they all arrived, what if he said to those Jews, come on and eat with us. Have some bacon, you know? Or in, instead of withdrawing, or, or maybe better than that, to those guys, I know this bacon bothers you guys, and we can disagree on that, and that's fine. You don't have to eat any of it, but join us, and let's talk more about Jesus. What a great response that would have been, right? And we wouldn't have this section of scripture anymore because Paul would have said, sweet, you know, done. What, we can do this. You know, and, and other parts of the Bible, it actually, as important as this issue is of food laws, other parts say, if a Jews, Jewish Christian's conscience is seared about food, they can do whatever they want as long as they're not requiring other people to become like them. That becomes a false gospel from the pit of hell. It needs to be called that because you're saying Christ's blood was spilt for nothing. But what if we just say, we can disagree on these things down here. We're not going to make them central. Dine with us. Let's talk about the majors. We can debate on these things, and maybe you'll persuade some people. Maybe they'll persuade you. But you'll, love, you'll laugh at yourselves. You don't take yourselves too seriously. You'll love each other across those minor differences. Because all along, the gospel for you is not those things. The gospel for you is something quite different. Being reconciled to the God of the universe through the spilt blood of our Savior.
So with that said, um, let me pray for us. We're going to dive into communion here. Uh, God, thank you for the gospel of Galatians to help us in our endeavor to apply it. Help us as we uh, eat the fact here that you've died for our sins. And remember, it's the only nourishment we have spiritually in this life and the next. In Christ's name, amen.